Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Refuds on Film podcast. I'm Scott. This one's Drew. Well, it's hardly scientific, but it's really quite terrific. It's the spirit of the thing that counts for you. To be a great manifestation, a phenomenal fixation. Get scared to death. Hi. And the other one's Craig. <laughs> Beware the murder bots. <laughs> We're all drunk. Um, <laughs> Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. We, this uh, February intermission is one of them episodes where we just talk about some films, what we done saw and that. So I suppose, in the interests of talking about films and that, we should talk about one of the films and that. That being, in and of itself, which is Drew's uh, responsibility. Director Gaudio's In and of Itself is, in no way, a film. However, this recorded version of the stage show was directed by Frank Oz, and IMDb listed as a documentary, so I'll take it. As what I really wanted was an excuse to watch this and talk about it, as, apparently, everyone has been talking about it. Or so I am led to believe. Premiering in Los Angeles and then moving to New York for a run of 552 performances, in and of itself is a magic show that, in large part, issues the use of magic, which is, to be sure, a bold choice. <laughs> Rather than using elaborate, showy set pieces, the soft-spoken Del Gaudio favours subtler fare, often close-up and card tricks, to focus his audience's attention and to help tell the story that is the backbone of the show. That story is of Del Gaudio himself, a selective autobiography, as he ponders the question of, who am I? and asks the audience to consider the same thing, while curiously and frequently performing low-key tricks. As an aside, I rather worry about the audience members wowed by what is, clearly, kinetic sand, a children's toy. (laughs) 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 Sorry. 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 As we watched it, I basically turned around to my wife and said, that's just kinetic sand. (laughs) (laughs) It's very obvious. (laughs) Um, uh, (laughs) or indeed the later brick discovery oh my god how could a non-unique brick possibly get to somewhere else in New York City 30 minutes to an hour after its location (laughs) during a show it's a Merkel oh dear mind blown (laughs) most of the gasps and the emotion are left to the finale though an impressive feat of memorization, certainly, but the basic mechanics of which seem very easy to guess at, and the actual payoff seems astonishingly manipulative, mm. especially compared to the genuinely emotional letter sequence a little earlier in, the, earlier in the piece. I have seen this portion described as an emotionally devastating sucker punch, but to me the appropriate term is cheap shot. Mm. Near the beginning, in a voiceover recorded for the film, Del Gaudio tells us, You think this is a performance. You see a man in a theatre. There's an audience. His lines are memorised, his actions rehearsed. It is difficult to see past what this looks like. Hell, it's easy to lie on a stage. It's even easier to lie in a film. I do not expect you to believe anything you're seeing or hearing. And knowing you won't believe me, that's the only reason I'm going to tell you the truth. You do have a choice, though. You can see it for what it is, or you can imagine what it could be. Now, I wish that I could see it for what it could be, but I can only see it for what it is. Bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) You you cynical, soulless automaton. (laughs) This is a performance, and Del Gaudio a good actor. 
I certainly hope that's the case because if his tears are actually genuine, then after 552 performances, he must surely be utterly destroyed and suffering from PTSD. But I'm not buying it, especially as I know the story of El Ruletista that forms a significant part of the narrative is a 1993 short story by Romanian novelist Mircea Catavescu, not the Spanish urban legend it's presented as. Despite what I appreciate seems a very negative review, though, I still found this passably enjoyable, and it's certainly interesting, so it's probably worth seeing. Just don't believe the hype. Yeah, um, it's an interesting beast, this. I was um, really intrigued to watch it uh, because of... I think before I'd heard anyone else mentioning it, I had listened to an interview with Del Gaudio and uh, Frank Oz on... A podcast whose name escapes me, I can't remember what it was, and it was a fascinating interview, and to listen to him talk about the intent for the stage uh, production and subsequently this documentary, in inverted commas, really just a screen translation of of the performance, um, I actually... Uh, uh, I feel like I feel like if the intent was there, that it's fascinating. I think what they were attempting to do, but I don't think necessarily um, this pulls it off. Certainly, it's potentially not necessarily a failing so much of the stage production as it is just the translation to film. I suspect that a great deal is lost emotionally uh, in the transition. Um, from you know the the potency, I suppose, of of being a member of the audience and surrounded and allowing yourself to be swept up in the performance of it all in the moment, um, I can imagine being much more connective in a way that I think they were aiming for with this uh, and some of the deeper themes of or well deeper themes. I don't think the themes are all that deep, really. Um, what Delgado was hoping to achieve. It's just that to hear him talk about it was intrinsically more interesting than to see it executed here. And I think there's only so much you can do necessarily with a filmed performance, or I suppose this was multiple filmed performances spliced together for our benefit. There's always going to be intrinsically something that you lose, no matter how you know competently it's it's been done. And there are only so many techniques at a director's disposal to translate something like that to to the screen. But like you, Drew, I still found it an interesting artifact. There were points where I, it threatened to find me emotionally engaged, um, but it never really quite pulled that one particular trick off. And as you say, it's it's just... It does seem most suspicious, or or certainly bold, as you put it. At least that you would present yourself as uh, as a magician, and then uh, and attempt to entrance an audience for the better part of you know, well, an hour plus um, by performing very little actual magic, oh, yeah. and that that again inverted commas magic, which is performed as you quite rightly say, Drew, um, all very easy to guess the mechanics of. So, um, yeah, a really interesting experiment. I would say not necessarily a 100% failed experiment, but certainly less impactful than I certain uh, reviews and comments I've heard made about it would have uh, perhaps set my hopes up for. But yes, I, I don't know. Scott, maybe you took something else away from it. I don't think I took anything else away from it. I, I probably enjoyed it more because of, well, I guess recently I've been more in 
of the mind that if you're going into something that is you know, plainly a magic show, then mm. you just need to try and shut that part of your brain off and go along with it. Because yes. if you something magic hasn't really transitioned to the age of YouTube and slow motion all that well. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, if you're going to look for the mystery of these kind of things, you can probably find it fairly easy. So you have to kind of make your peace with the, the meta answer that all magic is, you know, incredibly skilled performances, sleight of hand, gimmicked, decks and objects, all that kind of thing. So the answer is there. That's the the meta answer for all of it. How how to do that magic trick? The answer is, it's a trick. So you need to know that going into it and just Mm -hmm. be accepting and go along with it. And I think... um, Perhaps I was a little bit more engaged with uh, Derek Delgadio than you did. I was happy enough to be swept along by his throne. I think he's quite a captivating speaker. I mm. was happy enough to go along with it. Um, you're probably right, Craig, in as much as certainly the, that last trick would be much more impactful if you're there in a relatively small audience, sort of cooped together, having gone through all this together. And it's maybe a little bit more cheese-tastic when you have the uh, distance of the camera and your living room and the slightly uncomfortable sofa you might be sitting on uh, in, in between. That so yes, it's it is not I guess as effective as it would be where you're sitting in there in the auditorium. But uh, for the most part, I, I was actually quite on board with this. I quite liked it. I think he's quite a captivating speaker. It, it is worth watching. Um, I don't think were it separate, I would be paying to go and see it if this was the kind of um, mm. you know like Cineworld's filmed theatre performances that kind of thing. I don't think I'd be spending the extra to go and see it. Were that the case, but for something that is. You know, streaming on Netflix. This was, I think, if I remember rightly, Hulu. Um, Hulu. Um, yeah, it's something that's readily available um, on your your internet of choice. It's worth a go if you have any interest in uh, magic at all. Um, to be honest, you might get more fun from just going onto YouTube and looking for Penn and Teller Fuller's clips instead. But you know, it, it's pretty good. I liked it. So <laughs> take of that watch. I did find them reasonably engaging. I just, I was, I wasn't, and I was very careful to make sure that I didn't go with this mindset of like wanting to hate it because everybody else said it was great and so many people were talking about it. I, I was very careful not to do that. It's just that when he starts adding things about how like all oh, this is true and things and then it's, it just it rolled me the, the wrong way when he's saying things like that. Um, I mean, that, that's fair enough, but I mean, the thing you have to remember is that any magic performance where they start saying things like, oh, this is true, the performance started immediately before they started saying that sentence. You know, it's the same <laughs> thing when Darren Brown does his tricks. I'm saying, oh, like, I know, there's uh, definitely no stooges in the audience here. No. It's like, okay. That, that was less I about, see you, the, Derek. Not about the tricks. Uh, I mean, it's just like, yeah. it's the emotional impact of it. It's like, it was bothering me because it just, so much of it rang hollow, and that annoyed me because. You can't say like look at the people's faces when they did that um, multiple edit at the end of like the multiple audiences, mm-hmm. like that people were seemingly getting some sort of emotional impact from that bitch. It just felt so hollow, manipulative to me, and it really bothered me. And it really undercut it for me. Like again, but it's interesting, and I do find him quite engaging. Mm-hmm. And it's why, like, if there's any kind of truth to his emotion at the end. I, then I actually feel really sorry for him because he must be a wreck um, do you know to do what, that every night. Do you know what I found most upsetting about that end sequence is that there were certain members of the audience where he didn't actually reveal what they had chosen. He would just make a comment to them, like there's one yeah, guy... Like, keep I up think, the good work or something like that. Keep up the good work or something. And then the one person who you really wanted him to do that with, and it's a guy who has basically picked nobody... Yeah. And he sort of pauses on the guy. And what I really wanted Derek Delgadio to say to that guy was, don't ever think that. Yeah. And then just move on to the next person. Mm. But instead he just says, 
a nobody. And the guy, visibly quite upset, just sits yeah. back down in his seat and he goes on. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just kind of really wish he had addressed that differently, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just from a humanistic standpoint. But I did I did overall find it and I wanted to be swept along with it. And um, I, I do find myself becoming quite emotional quite easily these days. So I'm perhaps surprised at myself that I, I came out of it quite, I don't know if cynically is the word, but I, I would tend to describe it the same way you did, Drew, which is to say that there's an element of emotional manipulation there mm-hmm. that I didn't necessarily appreciate, I think. But yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I'm quite sure, as I say, if, if you know, to have been an audience member at one of those performances may have been... Um, you know, a completely different experience. I also just don't buy that the letter readers aren't just audience plants. Uh, no, no matter how much he protests in the interview that I listened to, that uh, they had a lot of mixed results with that, and that there were there were people who went up and read the letter and said nothing, and just went and sat sat back down. Um, again, we've only got Derek's word for that. See, uh, now that's a that's a bit like emotional. That did work for me, and um, like I didn't know about the because I'm. Um, heard him speak anything about it at all. Mm. So I've done the research you have there, Craig. Um, I've got the background. But I mean, I can understand that maybe some things that wouldn't work. But I could see the levers of that. It's like, okay, mm. they, they have an audience list, they know who's coming, they do, they've got researchers, they can contact their family because they're like, maybe booked out months in advance for the time to do it. The mechanics of it, I could guess that, but it seemed to me like those were, well, like, I, I bought it anyway, like those were real letters written by people in that in the family and stuff rather than being plants um and if if that's true if I, i'm not just being fooled then that was genuine emotion mm. um it doesn't really work as an audience thing though um particularly no. if like that not everybody's crying but um, whereas that felt considerably less manipulative because that was like a real thing that meant something to that person i suppose at the, the end which is just i just felt so phony to me and it, it bothered me you know what my problem with that letter sequence is, and the one thing that just convinces me that those people are plants is that all it takes is that member of the family to say it. So, you know, out of five hundred odd performances, someone's going to go home and have someone say to them, "Yeah, yeah, how did you find that man?" One of his researchers phoned me six months ago and asked me to write this thing, and that's it ruined. You know, so I don't know. I just, I don't know. I, if I, I would. I kind of want to go back and listen to that interview again. I'll have to see if I can find it, um, and I might listen to it again. If I can find out where it was, Drew, I'll, I'll let you know, because I don't know if I might might take something else away from it after listening to that again, recontextualise it a bit. But it's certainly really interesting. I wouldn't say to anybody, don't listen, uh, don't watch it. I think it's worth watching the once, if only to be part of the conversation and, and to make your own mind up about it. But I think you'll you'll, you'll very much take away from it uh, something different depending on the mindset you go in with like as you said Scott I think if you're willing just to shut everything off and, and go in and set aside your cynicism and enjoy it purely as a performance then yes sorry I've waffled enough <laughs> I tend to do that Okay um, let's move on to something very different then although magic's still involved I guess which is Earwig and the Witch Scott yes. get away it's a hard knock life for 10-year-old Earwig, not perhaps surprisingly, uh, because she's grown up at Morwald's Home for Children, where she was donated, I believe is the term, uh, by her mother as a mere babe. Uh, she's quite comfortable there, having the staff wrapped around her little finger. No, trouble comes when Bella Yaga and Mandrake decide to adopt her, in part because Bella Yaga is a witch and Mandrake appears to be a demon. 
taken to their home slash potion store, Earwig is set to work as an extra pair of hands slash slave, with the doors seen by means magical. So Earwig starts to plot an escape, working with Yaga's put-upon cat-familiar Thomas, and along the way might uncover a connection between Bella Yaga, Mandrake, and her long-lost mother. Although it could equally well just be a massive coincidence, as this film seems to have no concept of structure, character development, or basic actions and reactions. Now... We are, as evidenced by Podcast Passim, generally fans of Studio Ghibli's output, but not without some exceptions. However, even the less interestingly or altogether too minimally plotted outings, there's still a level of appreciation for the artistry involved in the art, in the artwork and the beauty of the piece. And to be fair, there's a few background frames where this looks entirely on Ghibli's normal level. However, this is the studio's first venture into 3D animated features, and it looks a lot like a failed beta test that's escaped into the wild. The character designs on these supposed humans is frankly repellent, and that makes this a very difficult film to invest any emotion in. And, well, so does the minimally described characters, the, let's politely say, Spartan plot, and the general sense that there's an interesting film in here about a touring rock group composed of witches and demons that's very occasionally glimpsed between what feels like vast stretches of, to be fair, justified, more about Eurig's lot in life, even though this film barely runs to 80 minutes. Not interesting, looks ugly, and definitely not Goro Miyazaki's finest hour by a long jock. Um, I've been trying earlier and failing to find some concrete production timelines on this, as this feels as though it's been rushed, or as rushed as something like this can be. Uh, but speculation aside, Eurig and the Witch just is not worth your time. Very little in here to like at all. I'm almost baffled that this was released with a Studio Ghibli label on it. This is this feels like this is just not on their level at all to the, the extent that I, I I can't believe this wasn't spiked at some point in the works. It is just bad. Um, I had quite a bit of trepidation going into this, particularly from uh, when we discussed um, covering it last week. The rather nightmare fuel like character shots that I'd seen from it. Um, I didn't necessarily see that in the stills, but as soon as they start moving, they just... Ugh, no. Weirdly, for me, I saw in the stills, but didn't see it in the movement as much, because I actually enjoyed this much more than I expected to. It's it's not on a par or even close to with any of Studio Ghibli's other stuff. And, you know, there were so many issues. Studio Ghibli is known for such beauty in their animation. Um, and this beta test is going to be put it, it's like it, it's computer animation that hasn't had its final render done to it yet. <laughs> yeah. Because for the most part, it's just so lacking in detail. And like in, in something like, oh, I guess oh, all of highly music stuff, but let's say the obvious comparison point, Kiki's delivery service. When you have the child, the children's faces, not, or any faces, and they're, they're fairly simply sketched, you know, uh, there aren't many features, certainly there's any texture in the faces, it works in 2D hand-drawn animation. In 3D, they look like some sort of creepy vinyl dolls with yeah. there's no texture, and it's really kind of disturbing. So but visually, it's just, it looks unfinished. The art direction in this looked like sort of PlayStation 2-era CG cutscenes. It has a sort of... We need, to, we need something that will render quite quickly, so this is what we've come up with. And it looks spartan and just no is this is very far away from state of the art to the point where it's it's not even you could say that it's it's a stylistic choice it just looks like it's been done quickly yeah that's, it really looks unfinished yeah. as i guess yeah, so i'll say it again but it feels like it hasn't had its final render done uh, render pass done 
It's what it feels like. It's like this is a step or two before the end for the like they add all the textures and things. Yes. <laughs> um but that said, I, I mean I, I found that I found it reasonably um entertaining, but there are huge problems with it, including the fact that most of the story seems to not be there. Yes. Uh and particularly when we come to the finale, um and then a thing happens, it's the last frame of the film. And uh, where's the other two or three chapters that explained that? Yeah, yes. The, there's a lot of things that happen for no particular reason, which leads to other things happening, except not by any kind of direct consequence. It's just another thing that happens in the script. It's, yeah. yeah. There's vast gaps of this missing. That's why I'm wondering if it was rushed, because it, it just doesn't feel like it's had a had a proper read-through even. <laughs> yes. It's like, I mean, cause the, the story in the beginning is fairly basic, fairy tale like fair and um, children's story fair like abandoned orphan taken away um, from the orphanage like Oliver Twist or something and, and he put yeah. the bad uses and actually I quite like um, Earwig or Aya it's just in Japanese um, I quite like that character but she's not given an awful lot to, to do but I mean, the people around her are terrible but she ends up liking them and then there's the whole Studio Ghibli style um, sequence in the credits of the, the extended adventures. Like, none of these characters deserve any of this apart from Aya. <laughs> like, why is this happening? Mostly, it was the why is where's the extra two or three chapters before the end? Like, it, it partly felt like it, and I, I don't know the book this is based on at all, the Diana Wynne Jones book, uh, but it felt like they were setting up for a series perhaps. Like the yeah. continuing adventures, and particularly having it have been made for NHK TV in Japan rather than it being a, a cinema release. Yeah. Maybe that was in the back of their mind, but it doesn't help. It's like that half the story's not there. It doesn't, it, and it's so little to support what goes on. And again, yeah. particularly the ending. It's all first act. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also. Like the, there are other couple of things there. It's like they had an idea and it didn't go anywhere. And I was, I'm going to ask you about it. What if you had any idea? But I'm, I'm going to guess the answer is no. Like, for instance, all through the film, you hear in the background several scenes inside the house, weather reports from all around the world. And I thought, is that leading to something? Like, uh, in, you know, in Ponyo, when the waves start rising, you start hearing reports about like ships and things and the weather's going weird around the world and the like basically the moon's coming close to the earth so is it building up to something like that but there didn't seem to be any payoff to that was there any point that you discerned as to why they were in this little English town and getting weather reports from New Delhi and Indonesia <laughs> no not that I can gather <laughs> um, yeah so it's it, it's not as bad as I feared uh, it seems that I had a better time with it than you but it's it's not good it does not deserve to have that lovely blue silhouette of uh, Totoro at the start of it hasn't earned that no <laughs> it is as um, this film has taught me that the Japanese word for nonsense is nonsense um, <laughs> and it's kind of nonsense this film unfortunately yes garbage right so moving on uh, the kid detective then true what's that all about imagine peaking in early adolescence your greatest achievement arriving before your facial hair so it was for Adam Brody's Abe Applebaum and Evan Morgan's The Kid Detective. Where we're not talking Bobby Fischer here in terms of achievement, nor fortunately for Abe in terms of decline, his adult self is very much stuck in a rut, coasting on the acclaim 
and free ice creams of his youthful successes. Now 32, Abe is a private detective who once operated out of his treehouse, solving great mysteries like missing cats, stolen trinkets, and whether or not someone's friend really trained with the Mets during the summer, for nominal fees. The treehouse has now become an office, and actually, that's about all that's changed, apart from adhering to a pretty strict uh, drug uh, regimen to keep his mind, you know, uh, limber. (laughs) Well, and the addition of a goth secretary, played with superb, I could not give less of a f***ing disdain by Veep Sarah Sutherland. The title suggests a live-action Disney film, perhaps with shades of the Hardy Boys and the colourful early flashbacks do little to disabuse you of that notion. But in the desaturated actuality of Abe's life, things start less happy and get dark quickly. Always lurking beneath Abe's storied successes is his great failure. His friend and employee, Gracie, disappeared when they were 14. Everyone in the town knew that it was only a matter of time till he found her, but he never did. Since then, he's become an object of ridicule and pity for pretty much everyone in the small town, including his parents. A situation not held by defending himself at a family dinner by stating that he has solved over 200 mysteries. It's a surprise then, when a dame he knew would be trouble walks into his office. Well, a high school student who he's actually done work for before, though he doesn't remember. Though in Abe's head, he'd clearly love to be Sam Spade and she a femme fatale. This dame is Caroline. Sophie and Elise, who wants him to solve the murder of her boyfriend, Patrick. Somebody murdered my boyfriend. Seriously? Pretty seriously, he was stabbed 17 times. (laughs) Something the police seem unable to do. Taking the case but charging no fee, Abe wants to use the opportunity to restore his reputation. But that decision will take him down darker roads than he ever imagined and awaken old ghosts. Star Adam Brody has a face I knew, although could only recall from the recent Ready or Not. But apparently he had been tipped for great things in the past, something that never quite transpired. It is perhaps inspired casting then, but whatever the reason for his presence, Brody is excellent as a defeated and rather pathetic gumshoe, with his hangdog expression. He is a wonderful foil in Sophie and Elise who came to fame in Brian Percival's The Book Reader, as Caroline, whose trusting innocence and bright charm contrast wonderfully with Abe's moroseness and cynicism, and it's a delightfully wholesome relationship between the two. Both the writing and direction are hugely assured from first-timer Evan Morgan, who manages to successfully balance the tonal shifts of the mixture of a black comedy, regular comedy, film noir pastiche, existential introspection and ennui with an intriguing mystery a good 90% of the time. There's particular joy in seeing daft cliches called out by characters and a great payoff to a running gag about hiding in wardrobes. While not as good, though certainly much funnier, The Kid Detective is very reminiscent of Ryan Johnson's Brick, a comparison that the world and its dog has made, but is no less opposite for it, which you ought to consider a high commendation. Yes, don't think I've got an awful lot more to say about the kid detective over what you've said, but I do agree completely. It is probably the you know, certainly the most enjoyable of the films that I've seen for this episode. It almost doesn't stick the landing um, for a while. It's you know, it is doing as you say about ninety percent of this time being a really good dark comedy, and then there's a twist towards just plain darkness at the end, which it 
almost doesn't land. It stumbles a little bit, but it kind of recovers. And um, you, you don't want to be the film that's like 90% great and then 10% because yeah, then people will just remember the... Yeah, but thankfully, it kind of pulls it back. And uh, everything before that was, I found, absolutely joyful. Um, it's a really well-constructed comedy film. Lots of lots of nice little setups and payoffs um, all the way throughout it, which works quite well. You know, like uh, his parents saying, we won't be around to bail you out forever. And then they have to post bail you know things like that it just all works really well it's very funny and it's very well done and um yeah i, I enjoyed this a great deal um so yeah, minor quibble about uh, the ending aside highly enjoyable and everyone should definitely watch it yeah but, naturally i haven't seen it but i don't i don't necessarily believe you drew when you say that there can be such as a thing uh, as a running gag that pays off uh, regarding people hiding in wardrobes but there is craig there is well i suppose i have to take you at your word uh, I award it four out of five. It's like the little bits of kind of subverting of the the genre tropes to Scott, like when he finds out he's being tailed by someone, as happens in so many of these films, and then they find out the identity of who's tailing him. Yeah, like, it was really, really funny. Um, yes. I'm not all that for anybody who hasn't seen it, but it's it's definitely something worth checking. Out. I'm really glad I watched this. Yes, likewise, um, heartily enjoyable, and you should definitely give it a go. Yay. Um, we're going to move on. <laughs> try and unearth some treasure in something Craig has seen. Yes, I have seen The Dig. It is surely a peculiarity of rural British life that some situations may not be resolved to satisfaction until such time as a weary father figure, typically clad in beige tweed, has cast his gaze upon it, huffing assuredly upon a well-worn pipe, and only after some time asserting confidence through some single regional syllable. Such it is that Carey Mulligan finds herself enlisting the services of Rafe Fines in The Dig, one of early 2021's hot Netflix tickets and an early contender for the Best British Cops, Pasture or Arable Acre Award at this year's BAFTAs. <laughs> the former... <laughs> <laughs> the former plays Edith Pretty, uh, a naturally inquisitive landowner from Sutton Hoo, Suffolk, who in 1938 decided to tackle the mysterious burial mounds located on her land. In doing so, she enlisted the help of enthusiast archaeologist Basil Brown, Fines, and as this film would have it, so began a beautiful friendship which saw the pair take on the British historical establishment, armed with naught but a sense of discovery and some good old-fashioned elbow grease. Brown's hunch that the site is Anglo-Saxon rather than Viking turns out to be well-founded and word of the dig's historic cultural value soon spreads. As is to be expected of the early 20th century middle classes, the Ipswich Museum, nominally Brown's employer, and the British Museum, represented by eminent archaeologist Charles Phillips, portrayed here by Ken Stott's nose, profess their disdain at Edith's management of the site and attempt to assert their particular brand of bureaucracy upon what has become an excavation of national import. After all, the poor woman is clearly hysterical. After much wrangling, demotion, jurisdictional assertion, humanistic appealing and smoking of pipes, a sidelined Brown is allowed to continue digging along with a cabal of somewhat more academic types, and Britain is rewarded with one of its most significant archaeological finds to date. Shame everyone was concerned with the onset of war, really. There's something reassuring about the dig that I can't quite put my finger on. It's a proper mint humbug of a film that just wants to pour its audience a cup of tea and a good yarn without necessarily challenging them too much. However, it manages to avoid coming across 
as lazy or trite by virtue of some wonderfully committed performances, a decent script, and occasionally beautiful cinematography that all work to cement the feeling of time and place pretty well. Nothing about it's necessarily groundbreaking, but then nothing about it is particularly bad either. I was concerned at a point about half an hour to 45 minutes in that there was going to be some sort of awkward romantic entanglement between the leads, and while there are hints of repressed emotion here and there, the script wisely keeps their relationship firmly platonic. Duties of lust instead fall to Lily James as archaeological assistant Peggy and Johnny Flynn's Rory Lomax, Edith's cousin whom she entrusts management of the dig. And I think it benefits the movie on the whole to have this theme of buried emotions more evenly distributed throughout the fabric of the narrative. There are some other bits and bobs going on that don't really amount to as much as they might, such as the intent of director Simon Stone to keep things as low-key as possible, but they do serve to shoehorn in moments of mild tension and occasional levity, and as a result, the dig is just... Oh, it's very difficult to dislike. I'm not sure the praise being heaped upon the movie from certain quarters is necessarily all that deserved. If this is a film that has something to say about the fleeting nature of time and how we tend to bury our feelings in the past, then it does so well operating at little more than a surface level. Still, as I say, it's a very difficult film to dislike, and it came along at a time when I was pretty much in the mood for just this kind of thing. I rate this film fine out of hmm. It's one of those kind of solid afternoon watches, isn't it? It's kind of cosy feeling in so many ways. Yeah. And I, I enjoyed my time with it. I thought it was well acted and well produced. I had heard a bit on a podcast uh, from the BBC before about the incredible lengths it went to to like make the ship, the bird ship, look like it had always been in the earth when they were recreating it. And I appreciate all that kind of technical craft. It is basically repressed emotion in the movie, though. Mm. Um, the point where it's like that kind of stereotype of particularly English people having like repressed emotions and stuff like I think they took it a bit far in this film because it seems like that's all there is mm. but I mean that's, that's a fairly minor complaint I have with it, it just seems like they've gone a, a bit too heavy on that and I don't, don't have much to add to what you said Craig other than that for a film called The Dig about an archaeological dig I'd quite like to have seen a bit more of The Dig Mm, um, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I wanted Tony Robinson and a bunch of um, people from Cornwall to pop on, you know, and <laughs> start like, going through it, but... It's archaeology against the clock for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> and just, like, wild random speculation about what a tiny fragment of metal previously belonged to. Um, it's probably a space alien. That's right. What that is there, right? This tiny piece of metal... Quarter of the size of my fingernail, flat, featureless. That was clearly part of a ray gun. That was. <laughs> but yeah, I would have liked to see more of the dig. Um, but I really, really enjoyed Ralph Fiennes' performance too, because you know how yes, it's entirely possible for him to completely chew the scenery. Uh, but it's actually, as with everybody else in this film, because everybody's so repressed in every way, but yeah. it's quite low-keyedness. Um, He's really reserved, isn't he? But in an enjoyable kind of way. Yeah, I really liked it. Cause, um, it's kind of it's an anti-Ralph Fiennes performance. I mean, mm. uh, like, Ralph Fiennes during the scenery can be great, what they say, in Bruges. Um, yeah. And I didn't, I never really liked him a lot, but uh, his turn is M in the last couple of Bond films that actually made me like him a lot more. Mm. He reminded me, and this he reminded me a lot of Ted from The Fast Show. Yeah, we'll see this thing. <laughs> for the first half of the film, and I've never even seen The Fast Show, and that's uh, like that has still kind of entered public consciousness. Um, but I was thinking that it's like different accent, but it's like basically the same character. It's like, this felt so like that. 
but I, I really liked him. I, I was kind of shocked about how old he looked, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't expect that, but the, he was kind of the revelation because I didn't expect this kind of really subtle performance from him. I, mean, I know he's well regarded in other things, but I've never seen The English Patient and a lot of the other stuff he's really well known for. It's a long time since I saw The Constant Gardener. But I really, really enjoyed Ralph Fiennes. Carrie Mulligan, she's likeable enough and weirdly believable as that middle-aged woman. She, she can do kind of younger and older, um, both of which we're going to cover in this film. Yeah, uh, this transformation's podcast. really convincing, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Um, again, it's like the, apart from wanting more of the art shock, the only thing I just get, but at the end of it, I was like, couldn't somebody just show some bloody emotion? Mm. <laughs> it's like, it's too restrained. Like, you're taking this whole kind of stiff upper lip and not showing your emotions thing way too far here, especially given that the, it's set with a country heading into war. And people should be just slightly more concerned mm. about anything and everything. You don't think this was stealth, the fifth Indiana Jones movie, do you? <laughs> I didn't see one CGI go for, so I'm hoping so. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. At no point did anyone get inside a fridge. <laughs> This this film is good. I enjoyed it. If I wanted to be particularly cantankerous, you could maybe talk about the historical inaccuracy of parts of it in a film, which is actually about you know digging up the past and all that kind of thing. Mm. So why are you tinkering with the characters of Peggy, um, Peggy Prescott? The pretty, yeah, pretty. Mm. No, 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 um, no, not not her. Um, the oh, sorry, the, the, the archaeologists. Peggy Pickett would yeah, be the yeah. name I was looking for there. And the kind of relationship with her husband who's, you know, clearly replied. You know, all that stuff's made up nonsense and it's just there for it being a film, but it's a film, so what are you got to do? Mm. Um, largely, I'm just sad I couldn't work in a proper reference to the old uh, Lucasfilm game, The Dig, and make that have any sense. But c'est la vie. Uh, the film itself, quite a lot of fun. Perfectly enjoyable, as you say, afternoon fair. Nothing particularly challenging in here, but it's an enjoyable watch. And uh, it's, a, it's an easy, undemanding thing you can do. You have a roll in front of your eyeballs for an hour and a half. And yes, it's it's fine on that basis. Yeah, uh, I don't think I'll ever watch yeah. it again, but it's cosy. It's a cosy kind of film. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It's a nice blanket of a film to, to draw up on you. On it's, the, uh, it's tea and crumpets. It's tea and crumpets. Yeah. Or maybe a cracker and cheese. But not a not a, like, obviously. I heard that's cracking and cheese, and that's a very strange combination. Yes, not a strong cheese. You understand? Not like a not a strong cheddar. Like maybe a maybe a bit of Wensleydale or something. Or a nice red Leicester. Mm. Nutty. Mm. Shall we move on to the endless trench? Imagine being trapped inside for ages, unable to see anyone, unable to go anywhere, seeing only the same four walls, day after day, while your life seems on hold. <laughs> In 2019, when La Trinchera Infinita, or The Endless Trench, was produced, this probably seemed hard to comprehend for most, how times change. But now imagine being trapped in what is, save the mud, more or less an actual trench, and it's for 33 years, trapped, metaphorically and literally, in the structure of an actual war. Ah, now we're in nightmare territory. The Endless Trench is based on real events, but rather than an embellished true story, it's an imagined fiction working from numerous real-world examples of topos, or moles, enemies of Francisco Franco's fascist regime in Spain, who had been in hiding since the Civil War, fearing retribution and possible execution for crimes, whether real, embroidered, or simply invented, 
relating to having supported the Republican faction and therefore being on the wrong side, i.e. they lost. A number of these moles eventually emerged when an amnesty was declared in 1969 to commemorate 30 years since the ending of the war. The mole at the centre of the endless trench is Ihinio Antonio de la Torre, who is hidden by his new bride Rosa, Billy Cuesta, after a raid on his small village in Andalusia by nationalist soldiers. He almost escapes the village at first, but his attempt is thwarted by his Franco-supporting neighbour Gonzalo, Vicente Vergara, and is forced to return to his house and hide in a void hidden by some wooden steps. The grudge-bearing Gonzalo is an ever-present threat to Eugenio, especially in a small village where everyone knows everyone else's business, as are intermittent searches of homes by the police and military. Even after hostilities end, Eugenio is warned by Rosa that Republican supporters have been executed when found, so there's no end in sight to Eugenio's confinement. And a dark irony for the audience as he pins his hopes on the Allied defeat of Nazi Germany to force Franco's ousting by the international community. A move to Eugenio's father's house is engineered after a few years, but it is, in reality, simply an upgrade to a slightly bigger trench in which to be confined while life and the world move on around him. Threats to Eugenio and Rosa from both within and without mean that tension is never eased, that there can be no relaxing, and when a child comes along, things only get more complicated. Parts of the film's two-and-a-half-hour running time drag, but, and this you will not hear from me often, is both legitimate and necessary. (laughs) The portions in which nothing much seems to happen or change, while in the outside world, much changes, are crucial to selling Eugenio's plight. The grind where one day is indistinguishable from the next, it really is a serendipitously timely film, (laughs) becoming hypnotic and monotonous. There's plenty to chew on and ponder, though, even when there's no action to speak of, particularly the changing of gender roles and Eugenio's perceived emasculation in the hugely traditionalist Spain after the war, as well as the effects of a civil war on a country so much more damaging and insidious than wars against a foreign power. In that case, you can go home and hide away. How does one do that in a community where your neighbour, literally, was your enemy? Gonzalo is a victim of this in a way. His zeal and obsession confining him to to a prison of his own mind for the 33 years that his nemesis evaded him, and one that, unlike Eugenio, he may never escape. Despite having three directors... The Basque trio of Aitor Arevi, John Garano, and Jose Marie Guanaga, the vision of the film is very coherent, unlike the opening credits, which, after the Netflix logo, display that typical low budget, especially European, list of 11 production companies and various governmental and cultural funding bodies that probably contributed 15,000 euros each. That makes you marvel that anything ever gets made. I am, however, glad that this did get made and that Netflix is now making it more widely accessible, as it's an extremely rewarding watch. I shall have to catch up with this. Um, I didn't make it in time for this one, but uh, yeah, the whole post-World War II Spanish thing is one of these periods of history that I keep wanting to catch up with and never seem to manage to do. I mean, it's always interesting because you, you, you think of, kind of a post-World War II Europe as being fairly 
democratic and all that, apart from, you know, Spain, this huge landmass where Franco was stinking up the joint till, what, 75? You know, curiously yeah. long time. Um, Not just Spain, run- Portugal as well. It's got the whole Iberian Peninsula because um, yeah, yeah. it was fascist as well for roughly the same time, like with the whole Estado Novo yeah. um, thing mentioned when we talked about Sustaini uh, Pierre era. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, interesting period of history, and I would look forward to uh, getting a look at this. Unfortunately, I didn't for this time, so I have no no comment to make on the film, other than I shall get around to watching it at some point. Sounds interesting. Yeah, um, it is, um, because, like, Spain now, in every way, feels like a modern Western European democracy. Yeah. The same infrastructure and things. But Spain was incredibly poor for a really long time, like really, really poor in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, also, you've got the, the fascist regime, the incredible crimes that Franco was committing that like, not even all that long ago, the UN was telling the Spanish government to like, you know that um, law you had in like 1975 that was basically a forgiveness <laughs> of it happened under Franco? Get rid of that nonsense. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and then it's like the way Spain was changing, like you think now, like, you associate Spain with um, package holidays. I think (laughs) and it was actually even like that's such an important part of Spain's economy now that was really hard Um, yeah it was was covered in the BBC's History Hour podcast last year actually with the the guy that did the first one of those and like he's wanting to like show bikini clad women enjoying the sun and things like that and like that was such a hard thing to get past in this ultra conservative country yeah Uh, None of this is in this film, but just like it is a, <laughs> a country like so. Any um, excuse to talk about bikini clad women, Andrew? <laughs> a great age, Craig. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, a country so um, physically close to us and like so familiar to so many people, even if it's just in the, the touristy spots. Um, yeah. They're so, for such a large part of the 20th century, so different. Again, that's where this film kind of touches on that is Eugenio has really put his hopes on Germany being defeated because the Nazi regime was a big supporter of Franco, the the Luftwaffe very famously bombing Guernica and uh, lots of other involvement in the Spanish Civil War, even though Spain was involved in World War II. And, uh, but it never happened. Like, defeated Germany. It's like everybody kind of forgot about Spain, it seems. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> physically so close and it's quite weird to think that there's like this one outlier of this big landmass right in the middle of Europe that was so different from everything around it. Yeah. Peculiar. Um, yeah. Just a really, really rewarding watch. And the reason I had watched this was because there was an article on Variety a couple of weeks ago talking about how this film had appeared on Netflix that was really resonating with people. And I've watched that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. I get that trapped for 33 years. I, I feel like I can get on <laughs> Let's move on to our final thing. And our, um, it's weird how these things happen that um, a select, a completely random selection of films ends up having like crossovers with actors and sometimes themes and things. This time we have Kerry Milligan again and Adam Brody again, and it's promising young women. You wait all day for Carrie Milligan and Adam Brody Bill <laughs> to come along, and all of a sudden, two of them show up at once. Isn't it just typical? Uh, yes. Pr- promising young woman in which Carrie Milligan's 
Cassie Thomas leads an unconventional life, uh, a disillusioned coffee shop worker by day and a to-catch-a-predator honey trap by night. Masquerading as hopelessly drunk, she allows Ohio's selection of nice guys to help her get home, whereupon they (laughs) invariably attempt to parley that into date rape, at which point she can spring a gotcha, although I feel there ought to be some further step involved beyond pointing out the hypocrisy and piecing out. Seems like a dangerous hobby without any other payoff. Uh, but why do this? Well, glad you asked. Uh, turns out it's largely a response to the sexual assault suffered by her friend Nina when they were at med school, the trauma from which caused Nina to drop out and Cassie to follow suit to care for her. Although she did eventually commit suicide after this crime was not taken seriously and brushed under the carpet. This all resurfaces when an old med school friend, Paul Burnham's Ryan Cooper, walks into the coffee shop and a relationship begins. However, when Cassie realises that one of the perpetrators of Nia's gang rape is about to get married, she hatches a scheme for revenge. Now, I found promising young women to be an an uncomfortable and not particularly rewarding watch, not just because of the subject matter. My main problem was an inconsistent tone, and I'm not sure whether that's by design or accident. It bounces around between dark comedy, straight drama and slasher flicks so often that the whiplash very much detracts from the film. Similarly, the lauded performance of Mulligan, which I'm also not sure if I can decide whether is really great, subtle piece of work or a piece of something else entirely. Um, (laughs) While she's being, well, normal human being in the relationship with Ryan, she seems, well, human, but I'm not convinced at all by her turn as a nihilistic wage slave or as a cunning femme fatale. And all that puts me rather off balance, which I suppose is the point of the film, but I, I, I'm not sure it's getting there through its intended route. I don't dislike the general concept of the film, though, and there's a good modern update on the Grindhouse genre staple in here somewhere, but for my money, not quite in this iteration. Ultimately, it's not something I'd recommend, although I'm sure a lot of people will get much more out of it than I did. Uh, yeah, uh, it actually took me a couple of goals to watch this. I think you watch it in shifts. Um, I, I don't know how much of it is just... I, I, I really wasn't buying uh, Katie Mulligan's performance in this. Particularly at the start, I found that quite almost unwatchable, um, which is odd because I like Kerry Mulligan generally, um, but I just was not buying her as a human being in this film. And uh, that made it quite tough to, to watch through. I, I don't know, maybe if I'd managed to actually buckle down and watch all of this in one go it might have hung together a bit better for me but yeah it just i found it a bit of a slog to get through i can't recommend it sorry um i can but it comes with a lot of caveats that i clearly got a lot more from it than you scott but there is the the tonal problem and i think it how you respond that comes down to how you read it and I read it, which I think is the way it's meant to be, but I can really very easily see how other people would not feel this way, is that as well as being a pastiche of kind of more exploitative rape revenge films, um, it is kind of taking the piss out of your anywhere from like 1990s to 2010s romantic comedies, particularly that kind of middle section before it gets really dark again. Yeah. And so like, like the couple are dancing carefree in a um, a pharmacy and it, it doesn't fit with the other the, the before and after of it at all but it's really it's kind of taking the, the piss out of that it's a pastiche of that uh, um, a mockery more than anything actually however while I was aware of that and it didn't particularly bother me still thinking it's so different from the tone of the rest of the film that it doesn't quite work 
Um, especially given that how that section ends with a revelation. I'm really hoping that wasn't meant to be a shock because it was very obvious how it was delivered. You could really guess, I think, but given that we know the general time frame and who was involved with various things, like that revelation with that main character was the... Mm. I'm going to say spoilers here because it's going to be very difficult to talk about without that. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, um, yeah, if you've not seen Promising Young Woman but you're interested, stop listening now because we're going to talk about the end. So you have been warned. Yeah, when you find out that Ryan was involved, that's not a shock. That no. was clearly coming because you knew he was involved with those people back in the medical school days. So it's not the first time I'm kind of, I find myself second guessing the director's intent and wondering whether like I'm reading it wrong or something like, is that supposed to be a shock? And I don't think it is. I think it's just meant to be the bit that turns her back. So like she's fooled into thinking things are okay and aren't. Yeah. Um, I don't think I took it as it being necessarily a shock as such. Uh, it was within the boundaries of what was there, but from what you kind of learn of this guy's character, um, as he's kind of presented in the modern context, <laughs> I can see why the character may not have expected the previous version of him to be part of that um, whole sexual abuse scene. Mm-hmm. So I, I can, I suppose I can see it from that context. But yeah, I mean, in terms of viewing it as an audience, yeah, uh, <laughs> obviously he, he it makes a lot of sense that he would be involved in it in some way because it's the defining thing that this film's built around and he's the only other character. Well, not the only other character, but the only other main character that is around in that time. So seems likely he would have been involved in it, you know what I mean? Yeah, and again, um, exactly. Conservation yeah, yeah. characters and all that, you know. And all of the, the villains and the piece, he knew them as friends with them. And, um, but that kind of, so this means she's not, uh, Carrie Milligan's character is not the person that was assaulted, but she seems to be as affected by this as anybody else, or, or by Nina, um, who it's never clearly stated she killed herself Um I think it's heavily implied, but never stated. But it, it could be anything. It could be it, like it's not explicit, but it's pretty clear from the context of everything and yeah. their parents saying yeah. that. Was, uh, I, I didn't think it was certainly <laughs> the trauma of it caused them. I mean, it, it could have been something like depression led to not eating or something, and it's it's not quite the same as suicide, but results are the same and the cause is the same. So, I'm not going to get into that. But then, yeah, so the film takes this turn. So, it's, while I, as I say, I think it's trying to kind of mock those kind of sappy like late 90s early 2000s romantic comedies because it's, that's quite a long section of the film totally feels so different from the rest of it and it doesn't quite fit yeah but so we get to this, the next session she starts like going back on on the revenge path um like and i still quite enjoyed her journey and see what she was doing and I quite like the the subversion of expectations like she turns up to Alfred Molina's house and she's all ready to get him punished and like oh wait um maybe other people have had thoughts about things too and like I really like that actually so there are some really nice things in there and it's like it's not just your straight up revenge drama or anything like that and and I found Keir Milligan's performance pretty good I think it's not hugely well thought out in terms of what she's doing. As you said, of this is not always going to end well. Um, and, and people who are prepared to rape an unconscious woman might be prepared to do it with a conscious woman. 
and they're not mm. going to necessarily stop just because she said, uh, hello, hello, look, I'm not drunk. And also, I can't take McLovin seriously in anything when he's not basically <laughs> McLovin. <laughs> yeah. But the, the biggest problem I had with the film is the ending. And, like, in one way, it's kind of satisfying that justice is done-ish. But, uh, and also, I kind of like the fact you think when she goes to this bachelor party at the end, you, you kind of feel like you know how it's going to go. And it very shockingly does not go that way at all. I, I I kind of like that on some level, but as an actual audience member, I'm not sure I did, on the basis that it, it's just such... But that and the scenes that follow it, where it's kind of twisted a little bit in terms of how the, the outcome kind of plays out, doesn't make any sense at all. Um, yeah, but that, it, that's it, my like, big problem. That's what I'm coming yeah. to. Yeah, um, so like the, what happens to her when she, she gets killed? Um, they're like, oh, that's... I did not expect that. And it ties in quite well with, like, you know, like, these things don't end well. Mm-hmm. And uh, had this been a romantic comedy and, like, that Ryan had done this terrible thing and it, then, like, I, I love you and, like, and don't you still love me? And she just kind of looks at like, no. Because <laughs> in the real life, no, you've been sane. Yeah. Uh, and that happens um, at the end. And, like, okay, I didn't go how I expected, but, like, she had the the video I, I assume she sent that to the police or she had some way um and that would be okay but it kind of gets stupid at the end and it, it it really offended me how stupid it was because is the suggestion that she knew she was going to die and that yeah. somehow she knew that um her body would be disposed of and that somebody would help him and uh, also uh, Max Greenfield and that the police would be happy enough to show up when it would be dramatically convenient for the film to end yeah and also that um knowing that she was going to cause trouble at the bachelor party that Ryan would still have turned up at the the mm. wedding I thought he'd probably want to avoid that and like why would she send that thing to Alfred Molina because she's she's assuming he's actually honest in his contrition but she doesn't know him mm-hmm. rather than just send it to the police it's like it's because you want like this kind of satisfying ending where you can like think, well, this terrible things happened, but yes, we've got the got the villains of the piece. Like, yeah, but it's all kind of stupid. Yeah, there's a lot of film shortcuts that are taken at the end of it, which in and of themselves are, are you know fine because it's a film, but it, it kind of undercuts itself just by being so obviously it being artifacts of a film in being written as a film rather than something where you're trying to actually invest any proper emotion into, which I would argue is something that is trying to be a vaguely realistic take on a rape revenge, you know, modern twist of that. It, it, it demands a somewhat better, uh, a, a somewhat higher production value than what actually it gets, which is basically the kind of same low concept, low thought, nonsense that you would find in grindhouse films and again that's what i get to i can't quite decide whether this film's really really clever or really really stupid it's one or either of the both it's possibly both of them simultaneously (laughs) for the most part of the film i err towards the clever um it's clearly got an important topic at its heart Hmm. it has a lot to say and it's saying it strongly and it's it's not um coincidental that it's um written and directed by a woman mm-hmm. uh and i think um it's part of the problem is it's not not that it's stupid that it's not clever enough in it's writing like the scene i really like the scene with connie Britton as the dean of the university 
Yeah, that's um, good. And it's like she's she's put her daughter in danger or made her think that. And then she's mm-hmm. talking about like, we, basically she gets so many reports of rape on campus that she's getting two a week. Yeah. Like, should, should you not be worried? Should I not be setting alarm bells ringing? And it's like seeing like, you know, all these, these structures are in place that are not responsive to that. They're not flexible. Yeah. Uh, and there's a really important message. And that whole scene is really, really well done. Yeah. Um, because you're always like slightly on edge wondering, is there a point where um, Cassandra goes too far? Yeah. Like put someone else in danger and like she's kind of become the villain at that point. It never happens and it's great. But then, yeah, that, that whole ending is just it's so stupid because it's relying on ridiculous coincidences, which I, I, I never care for in any film of any description at all. It's um, just contrived. Yeah. It's unfortunate. It's kind of, in, a film which, in a film where the, all the other acts have been quite well laid out for the most part yeah it just again another film that just doesn't quite stick to landing yeah it's it kind of rushes to a conclusion there and yet the the rest of it because she kind of planned out the thing with Alison B's character and like just to basically mess with her um so here's what it's like it's a kind of revenge but you know never actually do anything bad but everything that happens there it's believable enough. Yeah. You know, she's she like, even the fact she drinks so much, it's like, she probably knows the, the person quite well and kind of knows how you can nudge her in that direction. And, and then that ending, it's like, oh, really? That's, no, that's just too stupid. Um, <laughs> it's like, I would have been quite satisfied if, like, things did not go for plan and not to plan for at the bachelor party, but she'd set up something like, should it go tits up? the police informed of the other thing and like there should be plenty of evidence in that tape if not to get a conviction at least to ruin his career yeah which would be something much more than nothing than nothing that had happened before but for it to be basically um relying on all those coincidences at the end and the, all the, the timing to match exactly how she wanted to go no that's that's disappointing um on the whole i really enjoyed it um it's not something i think i'd ever watch again i think i've got everything i could get out of it on one view the only other minor quibbles I have are with, also one minor quibble with the act, the casting is that Max Goodfield has no business being in this film. He completely changed the tone of it just by existing in it. <laughs> He's the the um, friend of the groom who helps him burn the body, Scott, if you're not familiar with that. It's, just, it's such a kind of goofy face and he's normally in comedy stuff and he just he sticks out like a sore thumb here. Um I, I kind of let away with that because you've already cast McLovin earlier in the film. <laughs> yes, so, there is that. Yes, uh, and, uh, uh, as I said, I did have my, uh, my issues with that as well. Um, <laughs> although less significant role that McLovin's playing. It is nice to see Clancy Brown not play an evil person. Yes, that was <laughs> unusual. Yeah. Clancy Brown smiling. Does he smile? Have I seen that before? I'm not sure. <laughs> so that's nice, but... Um, Yes, there are problems with like the tone and stuff, and there are, it's really funny in points. And I was enjoying it. I really like Carey Mulligan. Actually, that the middle portion with the kind of romantic comedy threatens to completely throw it off course. And it can, I think it's deliberate. So, believing that it worked for me, I could see very easily how that wouldn't. But the ending, it's just it's too stupid. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is, but in a, in a vault face from what I've said earlier, uh, the fact that we both managed to find so much to discuss in there probably means that it was worth giving it a go. Mm. So, yeah, give it a go. <laughs> I, I, I rescinded my earlier not recommending it to giving it a, a recommendation. So, yes, watch it and uh, watch it and discuss with us. Yes. 
So I suppose that will wrap us up for today. If you would like to get in touch with us for this or any other reason, then please do so. You can do so on the emails at podcast at fuzzonfilm.com, through the Twitters at fuzzonfilm, or through Facebook at facebook.com slash fuzzonfilm. It's very easy. Why don't you? Until such time as we get together to talk about films again, I suppose, uh, this will bring us to an end and I'll say goodbye. And I suppose tradition dictates these guys will do too. So that's something you could do now if you want to, Drew and Greg. Adios. My contribution here has been invaluable. It has. And I've enjoyed it heartily. I was going to say wholeheartedly, but I don't know if it's actually my whole heart. At least half of the ventricles of my heart have appreciated what you, maybe one uh, yeah quarter heartedly I approve of you bye